a, a good afternoon. If you are a Sunday napper, uh, I hope you were able to fulfill that, uh, that weekly appointment. Nothing like a Sunday afternoon nap. And if you didn't get one, uh, I hope you don't decide to take it within the next uh, few minutes, but uh, that uh, wouldn't be the first time that that had happened. Cowboys took care of business today. That's always a good thing. And it's always good to assemble with the saints. And I'm glad that you're here tonight. If you are visiting tonight, thank you, especially for coming out and supporting our gospel meeting effort. This week we are talking about the pursuit of God and how we are to make that a priority in our lives, the constant, regular seeking of God, seeking a deeper relationship with God, seeking to know more, not just more about God, though that's certainly a part of it, but not just knowing more things about God, but knowing God Himself more deeply and more fully. One of the things that we that I want to devote some time to, and we'll do that tonight, is to lay a foundation for our pursuit of God. And what I mean by that is this. Our pursuit of God is actually a response to His pursuit of us. Let me say that again. Our pursuit of God is a response to His pursuit of us. One of the things that the Bible teaches us is the importance of loving God and loving each other. But it's interesting that John in 1 John chapter 4 says, We love because... And you finish it. What? We love because He first loved us. Who loved first? God did. God loved first. So when we respond to God ourselves with our love for Him, not just our verbal expressions of love, but also our, uh, our love in action, the things that we, that we do as a loving response to God, we're responding to what He did first. And so tonight we're going to talk about that. We're talking about how God has first pursued us. And if you want to give a term for that, uh, we're talking about God's grace. God loving us is one expression of His grace, His goodness toward us, His unmerited favor extended in our direction. And so the grace of God tonight, the gift of God's grace is tonight's topic. Tomorrow night we'll, we'll take the opposite side of that and look at our response to God's grace and what grace teaches us to do and teaches us to be in our pursuit of God. So tonight, the gift of grace. There's probably no spiritual song that is more widely known throughout the world than the song Amazing Grace. And not just among religious people. I suspect there are a lot of folks that would not describe themselves as particularly religious, much less members of the body of Christ, who still can probably say a few words of the song Amazing Grace. It has been that popular over the years. And to hear of this grace is indeed a sweet sound, just like the song says. 
Now, there's not any place in Scripture where that particular wording is found, interestingly. In other words, you don't find specifically the words amazing grace in Scripture. Probably the closest thing that comes to that would be 1 Peter 4, verse 10, where Peter writes about the manifold grace of God or the varied grace of God, depending on the translation you're reading from. And that word, manifold, expresses the idea that God's grace is shown to us in many ways. That God's grace is an expression uh, given to us in a variety of formats. What I want for us to think about tonight are some of those ways that God has shown grace to us. We might ask it this way, what is it about grace that makes it so amazing? We would all agree that it is amazing. What makes it so? What are the characteristics of God's pursuit of us that make it so amazing? I want to offer you several answers to that question tonight. First of all, God's grace is amazing. His pursuit of us is amazing because it involved the highest becoming the lowest. God's grace is amazing because it involved the highest becoming the lowest. God's grace required that God Himself become flesh. John chapter 1 expresses that. Remember verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, same chapter, and the Word became flesh and and dwelled among us. We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, chapter 2, verse 14, in that the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's a reference to us, in that the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same. He became one of us. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, the mind of Christ is a mind of submissiveness exemplified in Jesus who became one of us. He took upon Himself the form of man and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself in obedience to the cross. So it involved God becoming flesh. The Creator came to live among the created It required that the one who was above the angels would become a little lower than the angels. Hebrews 2, verses 8 and 9. And so that's one thing that makes God's grace amazing. It required the highest to become the lowest in the second place. God's grace is amazing because it required the richest to become the poorest. The richest became the poorest. God is described as the one who is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50, verse 10. Think about God's grace in the person of Jesus. It required that the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills to be born himself in a barn. Luke 2, 7. The richest became the poorest. 
Jesus is described as the builder of heaven and earth. Hebrews 3 verse 4. He who built all things is God, that passage says. And we've already noted in John 1 verses 1 and 2 that Jesus was the one. In Him, through Him, were all things created. He is the builder of all things. God's grace showed itself in the builder of all things being raised in a carpenter's house. Mark 6, 3. The king of glory would leave the ivory palaces of heaven, Psalm 45, verse 8, to grow up in a poor man's cottage, Luke 2, 24. We know that the home in which Jesus was raised was, was a, a poor home because of the sacrifice that they brought after the birth of Jesus. The law required that, that uh, certain animals be brought to offer a sacrifice after the birth of, of a child. But if you didn't have enough to bring one of the, the, the regular sacrifices, you could bring a couple of pigeons or turtle doves. Well, that's what Mary and Joseph brought. That's all they could afford. The owner of the cattle on a thousand hills, the king of glory in the ivory palaces, became the poorest. He came from the city of rest... Revelation 14, 13, and came to a place where he himself would not have a place to lay his head. Matthew 8, verse 20. Jesus is referred to in 1 Timothy 6, 17 as the one who gives us all things to enjoy. Think about that. He gives us all things to enjoy. But when he came to earth in the flesh, he had to borrow the tomb into which he was buried, Matthew 27. That's how much God was willing to pursue you and me. That the the richest, the wealthiest of all would become the poorest. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 fits in well here, where Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. One of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. God's amazing grace. What makes it so? The highest became the lowest. The richest became the poorest. Number three, God's grace is amazing because it involves the best dying for the worst. The best dying for the worst. No doubt, Jesus is the best that ever lived. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 makes that point. He is our high priest who can be sympathetic with us because he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he without sin. He did no sin, nor was there deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2 verse 22. His love was unmatched. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. His love unmatched. His life sinless. The best. Well, for whom did this perfect one die? Hebrews 2.9 says he tasted of death for every man. 
And that would include then the worst of the worst. The best died for the worst. Jesus died for those who shouted for His death. Who shouted for His crucifixion. In Acts 2 verse 36, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, he he essentially pointed an inspired finger at those that were listening to Him. And He said, This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Jesus died for those people. He died for those who laughed as He died. Luke 23, verse 34. He died for those who persecuted Him and His people. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. Paul was one who persecuted. But he found grace because he did it ignorantly and unbelief. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 15. He died for those who had committed horrible sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following, Paul writes about our sinful past. He said, you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. In time past, he said, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, a reference to Satan, no doubt. And he said, among whom we all had our manner of life in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the rest. Jesus died for people in that category, for all of us. That's what makes God's grace so amazing because it involves the best dying for the worst. Next. God's grace is amazing because it gives us what we need instead of what we deserve. Grace gives us what we need instead of what we deserve. All of us, because of our sin, deserve death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, verse 23. The soul that sins, it shall die, Ezekiel 18, 20. It's what we deserve. But grace allows us to conquer death. It allows us to conquer spiritual death, to to reinstate that relationship with God that we so much desire, to remove the the, the penalty of our sin, and we avoid the second death, Revelation 21, verse 8. But we also are able to conquer physical death because of God's grace through Jesus Christ. In Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. We will experience a physical resurrection from the dead. So though we deserve to die physically and spiritually, grace allows us to conquer both of those things. That makes grace amazing. Next, grace is amazing because it cost God everything but it's offered to us for free it cost god everything but it's offered to us for free you know things of great value are seldom offered for free what's the old adage about uh, you know these great offers if it sounds too good to be true what <laughs> it is probably is 
And that may be true in everything else, but when God says, this grace is yours for free, it may sound too good to be true, but it's not. It is true. Grace offers the greatest gift of all, Jesus. And the blessings and benefits of His death and resurrection for free. God is the one who incurred the cost of this gift. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3, verse 16. Does God require you or me to give up our children? To to, to have our children die for the sins of the world? God doesn't require that of us. He bore that cost. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 20, You were redeemed, purchased, bought back. How? By blood. By the precious blood of Christ. God bore that penalty in the person of Jesus. This gift is not forced on anyone. It's offered to everyone, but it must be accepted. And it's offered to us. You may have it. And it won't cost you a thing. Well, how do we accept it? Paul says, by faith. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we are not required to pay for our own salvation. Jesus paid it for us. But this faith through which we access those blessings is real faith, genuine faith, active faith. It's a faith that involves our submission to God and our obedience to God, but our obedience is not the means by which we purchase our salvation. James talks about the importance of of obedience in our faith, James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. We can't claim to have faith in God and yet not let that faith be seen in our actions, in our lives. And so it's an active faith in order for it to be a living faith. But it's our trust in what Jesus did for us that undergirds our salvation. And so how do we accept that gift by faith? Well, the Bible's clear on that. We have to first put our trust in Jesus and in what He did for us. Except you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus said, John 8, 24. We have to trust Him. And our trust involves our willingness to turn away from our sins. And that that decision that we make when we decide, based upon our faith in Jesus, when we believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be, He is the Christ, the Son of God, then our, our faith and confidence in that reality is going to cause us to say, you know what, I, I've got to change my life. I, I've, I've got to, I, I can't live for me anymore. I, I've got to live for the one who died for me. And that decision that we make to turn our lives around and live it for Jesus is called in Scripture repentance. And it's required of all of us. Repent and be baptized, Acts 2, verse 38. God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17, 30. And then we accept that gift by confessing our faith in Christ. 
we're not willing to do that, he's not going to be willing to confess us as one of his own. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, verse 10. And then finally, we allow ourselves to be lowered into water. Immersed, buried in water. And raised from that water to walk in newness of life. You see, when we, when we do that, baptism, that's where we contact the saving blood of Jesus. Revelation 1 verse 5 says, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The blood is what washes our sins. But when does the blood of Jesus wash our sins? It, when we're in the water. That's Acts twenty two sixteen. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22, 16 tells us when we're washed. Revelation 1, verse 5 tells us what washes. The blood washes when we're in the water. That's God's plan. And so when we come up out of the water, we are raised to new life. Romans 6, 3 through 5. Now when we do those things, that is not our payment for our salvation. God has already borne the cost of it in the person of Jesus when he died as a sinless sacrifice. So that price has been paid. Our obedience to the gospel is simply our means of accepting the free gift. Now, I know some folks struggle with that. And, and, they, and they wonder, well, it just, it just sounds like you're working to pay off a debt. Whenever you say you have to obey all of these commandments, aren't you just essentially saying you have to earn your salvation by doing all of these steps? Well, it may sound like that on the surface, but it's really not the case. And I think I can prove that. I'm going to pick on Wes Mayfield. Is that okay? Is that allowed? Okay, Wes is the only one saying no, so I think that's allowed. I've got, uh, well, not a lot in here. Sometimes I have to put little strips of newspaper in there to keep the sides from growing together, but I do have a little bit of cash. I've got $4. All right. Wes, it's your lucky day, my brother. I'm going to give you $4, okay? You you, You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. I know that's against your nature, but you don't have to work for it. I'm not going to make you, you know, go wash my car or do anything else. It is my free gift to you. Okay? Agreed? All right. All you have to do is come up here and get it. Okay? All right. There you go. Now, question. Was that a gift? Sure, yeah. I didn't make him earn it, right? I didn't, I didn't have him, I didn't, you didn't have to shovel anything, right? You didn't have to wash anything. You didn't have to clean anything. You didn't have to do, you didn't have to earn it. My free gift to him. Second question. Did he have to do something in order to accept the gift? Did I, did I put a condition on that? I, did. I said, you can have this, but you have to come up here and get it. So he had to do something, 
right? He had to engage in action. He had to engage in activity. He had to do something. He had to get up. He had to walk over here. He had to reach out his hand. He had to take it. All of those things were actions, but none of those things would indicate that he had earned that money. It was still a gift. It's the same with salvation. It's God's gift to us. I don't know anybody who in their right mind would think that a person simply allowing themselves to be pushed under water and raised back up was somehow in that action actually paying for their own salvation. Now sometimes people will accuse us in, in the church of believing that or at least practicing it. But as kindly as I can say it, that's just not the case. There's not a single person in the body of Christ that I have ever met that believes that doing that somehow pays the price for our salvation. It doesn't. God paid that price. But God still says, if you want the free gift, here's what you need to do. But just because we have to do something doesn't mean that it's not a gift. Does that make sense? Now, before I go any further, I want that back because I don't believe in once saved, always saved either. So I want that back. <clears throat> no, you can. What's so amazing about God's grace? It's amazing because it cost God everything. But it's offered to us for free. One final point. What's amazing about God's grace? It's amazing because it's greater than all of our sins. It's greater than all of our sins. Paul is a great example of this principle. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul makes the following points to Timothy. He says, beginning in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful putting, in, putting me into service. So Paul says, Timothy, I am so grateful to the Lord because He found a place for me to serve. And then Paul reminds Timothy of what he used to be. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. But, he said, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. And he adds, it's a trustworthy statement, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which... I am chief, foremost of all. Paul said, Timothy, I used to be a blasphemer, one who spoke evil, hurtful words toward God. I was a persecutor, killed Christians. I was a violent aggressor. I was all of those things. And yet, he said, God's grace was overflowing me. God's grace was more than abundant. The chief of sinners is, was not beyond the reach of God's grace. But here's the point Paul is getting at with Timothy, verse 16. 
Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, as the chief, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Paul said, one of the reasons God saved me was to put me up as exhibit A. Toward anybody that that wanted to believe in Jesus for salvation. Paul said, I'm exhibit A. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was violent against the cause of Jesus Christ. But I found grace. And now I am an example before others. He would demonstrate in me His perfect patience so that I could be an example to others. Ever had anybody say to you, I just don't think God can save me. I've done too many bad things. My life, I've, I've made so many bad choices. I've hurt so many people. I just don't see how God could ever save me. You ever kill a Christian? Just for being a Christian? Paul did. And Paul says in this very passage, this is one reason why God extended His grace to me was so that I could be an example for others. Here's the point. If God's grace is sufficient enough to save Saul of Tarsus, blasphemer, violent aggressor against Christianity, if God's grace is big enough to cover him, it can cover anybody. And that's what Paul wanted Timothy to know. And it's what God wants you to know. God's grace is amazing because it is greater than all of our sin. It doesn't matter how many sins you may have committed, God's grace is bigger. Paul put it this way in Romans 5 verse 20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And Paul was a recipient of that. Now, that doesn't give us license to sin and live any way we want to, right? He said just a few verses later, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's not the point. It is not possible for us to, to out-sin the power of God's grace, but neither does God give us license to try. But God's grace is greater than our sin. Think of all of the sins that you have committed in your life. And once you get some concept of that, add to those sins the sins committed by everybody in this room. When you get a concept of that, add to that all of the sins committed by the current world population of over 7 billion people. And then add to that number all of the sins committed by every person who has ever lived in the history of the world or whoever will live as long as God allows this world to continue. And if you get some, some concept of that number, then remember this. The grace of God can cover them all. Amazing grace? I guess so. Because it's greater than all of our sins. I want you to think about all of those points that we made tonight. Grace was expressed in the highest becoming the lowest. It was expressed in the richest becoming the poorest. 
the best, dying for the worst. It gives us what we need instead of what we deserve. It costs God everything, but is offered to us for free, and it's greater than all of our sins. That's the extent to which God has pursued you. That's how far God was willing to go in pursuit of you. How far are you willing to go to pursue Him in return? What does all of this mean? Well, among other things, it tells us we've got a lot for which to be thankful. We can drop down on our knees tonight and express heartfelt gratitude to God for His amazing grace. In the second place, it tells us that we have hope in time of difficulty. When Paul went through a very difficult time in his life, dealing with what he described as a thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, the Lord's response was, My grace is sufficient for you. Doesn't matter what we go through, God's grace is sufficient. And number three, it means we have great responsibility. That's going to be our topic, God willing, tomorrow night. We've talked tonight about the gift of God's grace. Tomorrow night we'll talk about the demands of grace. So in, in, light, of, in light of everything we've said tonight about God's pursuit of us, how do we respond to that? What does this grace demand of us? We'll look at that tomorrow night, God willing. But it is possible to receive God's grace in vain. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1. We can receive God's grace, but if we don't <clears throat> remain faithful and true to Him, it might all be for nothing. And none of us wants that. Have you responded to God's grace? We spent some time earlier, I won't go back over all of that, we spent some time earlier talking about how we accept God's grace through faith and what that means and our, our response. If you're ready to do that tonight, we're ready to help you and assist you. If you want to, to know more about that, if it, that intrigues you, but you're, you're still not quite sure exactly what you need to do or why you need to do it, you've still got questions, but you want answers, let us know. We'll open up the Word of God with you, study with you, help you to come to understand God's will for your life. I know most of us in the assembly tonight are Christians already. We've responded to God's grace in that initial way. Are we continuing to respond to it in the way we live? If not, and you'd like the prayers of your Christian family for strength, for courage, to stay the course, let us know that that's your need and desire tonight. Let us stand and sing.